Hello, stranger. Welcome to the Lineup Podcast. If you're a fan of mystery, you've come to the right place. With each episode, we unearth a strange case from around the world. Today's episode, we present a dramatic reading from the Murder Chronicles, an interactive mystery series delivered in weekly installments on thelineup.com. Our first case, called A New Orleans Murder Mystery, is written by Adrian Van Young. We'll speak with Adrian shortly. But first, let's take a trip to the Big Easy and meet Jim Shuro, a Bleed It Leads photojournalist and the protagonist of A New Orleans Murder Mystery who's about to witness one grisly crime scene that hits too close to home. Talent is a funny thing. Too much or too little can burn a man down. Looking back down the dark alleyway of his life or onto the grand avenues of his future, and there's his name in neon lights, but a few letters always don't shine like they should. My name is Jim Sherl, and I'm looking right now. The view from here is pretty good. That is, if you discount the fact I won't be alive very long to enjoy it. But that was only after X, and after the boys who adored their grandmothers, and after the murders that bled the Big Easy, and after Mr. Baffitt's with the nothingness for eyes, and after the man with the bag of nine irons, etc., and all the rest. But mostly it was after this. Me and Cajun Rob that night, fielding codes on the scanner, midsummer, New Orleans, when we copped to an incoming 78 just a few blocks from the crash we'd been filming and hightailed it over there, assholes and elbows, to find we had beaten 5-0 to the scene. I'd never been inside the shotgun in question, but I knew who lived there as soon as we parked. A man named Vaughn X, with a 13-day beard and hair that was shaved artfully at the temples. An ambulance chaser of crime, just like me. Freelance videographers, it said on our cards. We'd been going to night school together, forensics, trying to make what we played at legit. But I didn't kill him, if that's what you're thinking. I just knew enough to know this was his place. Someone was barreling off through the dark by the time we were crossing the street towards the house, and Cajun Rob called out, Hey, yo! But the witness or perp or whoever in question didn't even slow down. Before long, he was lost. The crime scene was this, eerie calm, barking dog, you know, the one you always hear. A couple people down the block were gathering out on their stoops for a gander. Where do you think the cops are? I asked Rob. Pile up on the tin, he said. We stood with absurd deference on the street, waiting for someone inside the shotgun where the murdered man lived to come out and invite us. Fuck it, I said, and walked up the front steps. Granted, it wasn't my style, but so what? There was something about the whole creepy charade that made me feel outside myself. 
not to mention the fact this was X Chinsky's place. The X in his name stood for X marks the spot, and I owed it to him, I suppose, to look-see. We'd never cared for one another. Withstanding that X had an edge in our business, Toyota 4Runner instead of a hatchback, better hookups for airtime at all of the stations, better hair than I had and more of it, just hipper, with a driver named Nettle that lived in St. Roach whose low-top vans were cast in lead and never balked like Cajun Rob when it came to those neutral ground swerves into traffic. The guy just kind of pissed me off. Lately, he'd been MIA, in class and at the scenes of wrecks. I never really questioned why. In fact, I had warmed up to living without him when here I was pouring myself through his door, a door which, oddly, stood half open. The scanner was right. He was dead on the couch, right there in the front room where he watched TV. He'd been stripped of his clothes and laid out end to end in what seemed a distinctly lascivious fashion, as though he'd been filming a porno for one or preparing to start when his murder befell him. A kitchen knife stood to the hilt in his chest. I didn't want to see his face. Blood spread from the base of the couch on the floor. But since the couch was dark, get this, the couch and not X and his death wretchedness seemed to bleed in widening pool towards my feet. There was something unreal about the scene, as though it were staged with the minutest care. Like me and Cajun Rob were here not as men of the press, but as unwitting actors who'd been pushed from the wings of some sinister stage to act out a drama we couldn't imagine. What a way to go, said Rob. We snapped a couple pictures of the body and the blood that we'd have to crop later to hide X's junk. At a glance, there were major appliances missing. A living room, but no TV. Adapter wires free of their terminals dangled. The furniture wasn't overturned. Papers coating the floor like you see in the movies, but the living room did have a disarray to it. Its chair and side tables appointed to stand at angles supremely unkind to feng shui. Either X was a terribly shitty homemaker, or he had, in the process of dying, been robbed. It was my call to book it outside after that where we could appear to be twiddling our thumbs when the murder cops got to the scene of the crime. There were already blue and red carnival lights cycling over the fronts of the shotguns due south. The night was hot that Gulf Coast heat that makes your bones feel packed with cotton. The ancient and moss-covered oaks appeared soggy. There was random detritus all over the street. A Popeye's cup, a stripped rib bone, a traffic ticket shredded up. The garbage in the street bin stunk. It would get and stay like this the whole summer long, the city caramelized with rubbish, as though the very atmosphere discouraged in folks the most basic politeness. Lights from the cop cars flashed over Rob's face, looking off down the block where the figure had vanished. You're thinking what I am, I said. What's that? Rob turned towards me. The lock wasn't busted, so who called the cops? Whoever pigstuck him, I guess, answered Rob. Either that or who found him, I said. We found him, Rob said. You didn't wait for me to answer before. As the cops pulled abreast of the house and got out, I waited in silence for Rob to go on. What a shame, he said, exhaling. He smiled ruefully from the side of his mouth. What a shitty-ass shame of a thing for poor Vaughn. In some dim and primordial space of my mind, I had hated Vaughn X out of envy and spite, 
but even in my reddest hour I'd never wished his death upon him. Wustoffed through the chest with his balls on display on a second-hand couch during hurricane season. If there's a more ignoble way, I'd love to know. I really would. When the beat cops were done taping off the front door and corralling what gawkers there were in the street, Daydu and O'Shea rambled up in their car, as long as a trash barge in baby shit beige. O'Shea emerged first in his clearinghouse suit, and as soon as he hit the night air, he lit up. Daydu didn't like him to smoke in the car, and Daydu, who'd been driving as always, came next, growing up from the knees with the grace of those egrets that frequent the waters around City Park. O'Shea was an Irishman, go figure that. He was tall with a gut that poked over his slacks and his hair was a choir boy's, all sandy and fine, a little thin across the top. Daydu was a light-skinned and long-limbed black woman with an Angela Davis confection of hair. They saw me and robbed to the left of the crowd. O'Shea flapped his hand at me, smoke in his nose. You, Shirley Temple, he said, Venaki. O'Shea had the rollicking French Quarter accent which made him sound like he'd washed up here from Brooklyn. He made no secret of the fact that he thought me and Rob to be foul parasites. You shit on my crime scene, he said. Detective, I said. Did you take a shit on my crime scene, he said. Daydu stepped in. He doesn't get out much, she said. Excuse him. How long you two gentlemen been at the scene? We've been at the scene for a minute, said Rob. Cajun Rob was a little bit sweet on her, sure. They were both from these guzzied up French Creole families, Louisiana through and through. They do New Orleans, Cajun Rob Lafayette. It sometimes left me on the outs when they got going on that stuff, though having they do on our side, more or less, was equal to the awkward moments. Did you enter the house? She said now, taking notes. Uncertain what to say, we didn't. They shit on my crime scene, continued O'Shea. Inundated my life with just barrels of shit. I recall stepping in through the front door at first and seeing the dead guy laid out on the couch, but before I could go any further, I paused and turned to focus on O'Shea. Something, uh, a vision. O'Shea's ugly mug reared up huge in my mind and I beat it outside. You're being facetious? Daydu raised her brows. There must have been a sense of humor in some off-duty part of her, hidden from view. But out here, I guess she perceived it as weakness. She had this glitter to her eyes. Well, sort of, I told her. Except for the dead guy. A dead guy, said O'Shea. You knew. You knew him too, I responded. We all did. Shit. He wasn't my enemy, O'Shea said. That there's the difference. He wasn't my enemy either, I said. We just happened to have the same miserable job. Might as well come inside while we peer into corners. Your footprints are already everywhere, probably. The NOPD was corrupt and non-standard, but tell me a functioning cop force that isn't. Things have gotten better since Katrina, but not much. A new mayor had Hawkeyes on all the precincts. Besides, there had been cutbacks, less cops on the street, which made them make do with the honest contingent. They do in O'Shea were a blessed chimera, principled New Orleans cops. The block had been roped off in several directions. Inside the shotgun was bustling with blue. We saw the same stuff that we'd seen on arrival while O'Shea and Daydu hashed out B&E theories. Cajun Rob hung at the edges of things. I snapped a couple pictures more. 
These pictures would empty the pot at the stations. Viewer discretion advised, graphic content would run the news banner, and people would watch. O'Shea's Dixie Guido Patois broke my trance. It does and it doesn't surprise me, he said. West of Esplanade, this is the second this month. You know, what's-her-name's murder. The woman got shot. The one who wore them scrubby things. The social worker, said Daydu. I could have sworn she was a nurse, O'Shea said. She wore a suit, she said, not scrubs. Whatever you call her, she died on this block. She died on the neutral ground up near North Roman. Neutral, that's a funny word. But they do put the kibosh on that with a look. Amelia Kent, that was her name. Poor lady could barely prepare for what hit her. I preached the truth, partner, so listen up good. We got crime coming up in the Treme again. Crime ain't never left the Treme, said Daydu, and this right here is Seventh Ward. Bullshit it is, O'Shea countered. You check the map. I see apples and oranges, baby, he said. O'Shea was a prick, but he wasn't far off. New Orleans had homicide mixed in its blood like chicory, bourbon, or anything else. The murder rate had plunged last year when the fearsome Politico mayor took up office, but in these recent months we were seeing a spike. Summer always managed that. In a way, X's death was just more for the pile, added height for the bar graphs, but also it wasn't. A half-empty bottle of Buffalo Trace was spotted on the kitchen counter. A tumbler sat next to it harboring dregs, lip and fingerprints on it assumed to be X. The rug beneath the coffee table in front of the couch had been flipped at the corner as though someone had lurched towards the couch, overturned it, but had been too rushed to flip it back. Again about that bleeding couch. The cushions were thick, I now realized, eight inches. The blood had stopped spreading, but damn, there was buckets. The wound in X's chest was clean. One way in and one way out, I had heard from Daydu as she studied the corpse. Once they extracted the knife, I imagined, the blood would come rushing like wine through a sieve. But for now, it had only seeped out of the torso and pulled in the hollows of X's slim hips, only some of it spilling around to the fabric and far from enough for that lake on the floor. I took a couple private pans at the base of the couch in its bloody oasis. The viewfinder had an uncanny effect on the scale of the mess as compared to the room, and I thought of that sequence from Kubrick's The Shining when the breaker of blood crashes into the hall. In X's in my forensics class, the instructor would scold me for antics like that. Stop trying to be like Cocteau, he would say, and start trying to solve a murder. While O'Shea and Daydu were still combing the house, me and Cajun Rob slipped out. We did the post-forensics thing, switching the point-and-shoot piece for the handheld and spreading ourselves out to take in more ground. Cajun Rob taking stills of the crowd and saw horses while I went around getting interview clips. Tonight it was typical bystander cud. I didn't hear nothing. No sir, didn't know him. It's a tragedy anyway, dying so young. And then I saw the little kid. He was probably 10 or 11 years old, sitting on the curb across the street from X's shotgun. While most of the crowd had been there rubbernecking, this kid on the curb occupied his own world, reading his phone with his chin on his knees in the tripped motion light of a neighboring house as though he weren't parked at the scene of a murder, but an OMVQ or a bench in a mall. I felt myself drawn to the place where he sat. He glanced up at me from the screen of his phone. Then he turned back again. He was playing drop seven. So what did you think of the guy? I began, intent to throw him off his game. White boy up in there, he said. White boy's dead, you know that, right? I guess I did, 
His fingers flew. I get them houses there mixed up. The houses, I asked him. Got white folk inside them. Bunch of them all down this block. They got black folk on Priura, white folk on North Roman, black folk on Derbigny. They call that the cookie. And X was the filling. The cookie, you heard. I hoisted the handheld and switched it to on. If you had to describe him in one word, what was he? He looked up at me for much longer this time. He regarded the camera I held with distaste. You turn that off, I'll tell you what. I did, there wouldn't be a point. You in OPD? You a murder police? He asked. I'm a journalist, I said. Time's picking you. Self-employed. You turn that camera off, he said, we'll talk. I turned off the flashlight, but left it recording. Okay, I said, let's shoot the breeze. He looked back and forth down the emptying block, his fingers poised above his phone. Bullheaded, he said. Did you know him? I'm saying. What was the bullheaded about? I pressed on. My brother Cleveland knew him better. Where's your brother now, I said. His face contorted. Shit, he said. You ain't getting after with Cleveland this late. Nobody's bullheaded, he ain't after something. Well, here's another way he was. Guy just didn't know when to shut the fuck up. He wiped his phone dark and got up from the curb and without looking back, headed off down the block. And the derelict gloom in that part of the world with its lamps on the fritz seemed to swallow him up. This episode has been brought to you by the Temple of Light by Daniela Piazza. Set in historic Milan, this historical thriller about a secret society buried deep beneath the Duomo has been praised for its historical detail and is often compared to the Da Vinci Code. Available wherever ebooks are sold. Joining us now is Adrian Van Young, author of A New Orleans Murder Mystery and the story you just heard. How are you, Adrian? Uh, hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Great. So let's get started. For those unfamiliar with the serialized mystery, uh, just give us a brief rundown of the project, what it entails, what someone could expect coming to it. Sure. It's obviously, you know, it's a serialized uh, mystery novella, I guess, is the closest approximation to what form it is. Um, and it, it takes place over the course of 12 installments. And the installments emerge, you know, week to week, back to back. Essentially, the gist of the uh, the case and the murder at the center of the mystery case is that um, there are two uh, what I, what they like to call themselves anyway, crime scene videographers. Um, so essentially, these are kind of guys who uh, freelance. They kind of drive around the city at night, and they film um, traffic accidents. They film. Um, you know, various police con conflagrations. They have, they both have uh, kind of uh, police scanners in their respective cars, and they're rivals. And at the beginning of the uh, the serial, um, one of the guys, whose name is Vaughn X, uh, has been murdered um, in his uh, shotgun apartment, um, and he's been murdered in kind of a um, in kind of a lascivious sadistic way. He's been stabbed in the chest um, with a butcher's knife and um, has been kind of undressed and posed on his living room couch 
and um, and that's sort of where it starts off. Um, and so then, of course, it's up to his rival Jim Sherrill to unravel uh, the mystery of why X was killed. And essentially, it's also interactive, uh, which is to say that the audience can comment and they can write in by email, sort of not only um, sort of uh, giving an idea as to what they think is going to happen, but also expressing a preference as to what they would like to happen. Which then affects or has some potential to affect the trajectory of the narrative, right? Exactly. So, you know, if somebody kind of, you know, zeroes in on some small detail as being a possible clue, I can then take that detail and I can expand it into something more meaningful uh, in the greater course of the narrative. I want to talk about that more, but first I just want to talk about this notion of serialized storytelling, which, of course, I think when someone hears that phrase, they think radio dramas, they think Charles Dickens, uh, but it's just as present today as ever in programs like Breaking Bad or True Detective, and I'm curious, as you're putting this all together, are you drawing on inspiration from present-day episodic narratives, either television or stories told via podcast week to week? Is that affecting uh, how you're putting your ideas together? Sure, I would say so. Um, I mean, I couldn't help but be influenced, of course, by the first season of True Detective, which I thought was really strong. most of the way through. It lost me a little bit when it kind of veered off into Southern Gothic melodrama Interesting. towards the end. Uh-huh. But by and large, I thought that was a, a really strong example of what you're talking about. And yeah, I've seen all, I've seen most of the kind of big popular uh, TV serialized, you know, high-end TV shows like uh, you know Breaking Bad I was a big fan of and Mad Men. And actually, I thought the best of the bunch was kind of a, a little show a littler show out of uh, uh, New Zealand, I believe it was, called Top of the Lake. I've seen that. That is very good. Very dark. Very good. Yeah. Elizabeth Moss is in that one. She's great in it. Yeah, Elizabeth Moss from yeah. Mad Men was the star. Uh, and she was uh, to- playing a totally different role. And that one I thought really hit on all the marks where maybe even True Detective fell off. Um, and then in terms of, uh, I'm trying to think, well, of, of course, like a lot of people, I listen to most of Serial. Um, which I would guess would be some would be somewhat of an inspiration for what I'm doing. Um, you know, albeit serial is true crime, and this is entirely fictionalized right. with a couple exceptions. Um, so anyway, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm very I'm very drawn towards the idea, but of course, you know, it's a it's actually you know as as I'm sure you know, it's a it's a, a mid to late 19th century phenomenon. Mm-hmm, right, right? It so it's back essentially much this resurrected form, which I do find pretty compelling. And you touched on uh, the influence of reader comments uh, and how they can affect uh, the narrative and the trajectory of the narrative, which I can only imagine adds an interesting angle to your own writing process. So how do you how do you incorporate that? How does that go? How does that go for you as a writer? Um, well, I was I was a little bit apprehensive about it at first, you know, because like any writer, I'm very kind of like proprietary over my ideas. Right. Um, but obviously, there is a part of me that um, that doesn't put a whole lot of stock in, um, you know, my ideas as some kind of untouchable, you know, property. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, I was kind of drawn to the idea of working with readers and I'm very much kind of as a writer, I'm very conscious of my sort of uh, 
my sort of signal aim is to get the reader to turn pages, you know, whether I'm writing something uh, more literary in quotes, because I don't actually believe that there's any distinction. But so, so that being said, I guess I was kind of, I was drawn to the idea of the reader being able to maybe not only clue me in as to where they see the plot headed, but also maybe like where the plot is lagging or where I need to kind of pick things up. Uh, but incorporating the uh, comments so far, as you ask, uh, has been great. Um, in fact, I've had a couple of readers, um, one or two in particular, who have actually uh, provided me with kind of uh, some really kind of crucial building blocks for what's going to happen later. Great. Well, see, that was my um, follow-up question. Is it, it, it holds a possibility of a reader picking up on a clue that you maybe subconsciously placed there, but at the time weren't even aware was such a goldmine <laughs> for the narrative. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I've been so, that's what is so fascinating about the whole process is that, well, you know, without, as if without giving away a plot point, there was one suggestion in particular that I was entranced with and which has become kind of a big part of the plot going forward. So hopefully that reader will be pleasantly surprised. Now the, uh, the mystery itself takes place in New Orleans and in the story we just heard, uh, there are specific references both to locations in New Orleans, its streets and its neighborhoods, and also the way in which locals uh, speak with one another, too. So you are from New Orleans. You're living in New Orleans right now, correct? I live in New Orleans, and I'm actually a, I'm actually a transplant to New Orleans, which in and of itself is a real phenomenon. Uh, but I originally, I was born in Texas, but I grew up in Southern California, uh, and then I lived in the Northeast for a long time, finally winding up in New Orleans. How does New Orleans and its its rich history, its dark history, how does that all play into your writing process? Well, um, in so many ways, I think. I mean, I often I will kind of describe New Orleans as it's kind of like a haunted house on wheels. It has this incredibly kind of uh, kind of spooky history. Um, and it has such a such a powerful sense of atmosphere, and also it's always kind of moving, which is where the on wheels part comes from. I mean, I think it truly is sort of the city that never sleeps in a lot of ways. Um, so, of course, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of well, you can take a haunted history tour here, in fact, to the French Quarter. But outside the French Quarter, even there's just a lot of uh, kind of bizarre. Um, antiquarian history happening in the city and you see it everywhere. Um, but, you know, apart from that fact, I'm, like, I'm thinking in particular of like somebody like just, just to, to toss out a popular example, uh, Madame LaLaurie, who is this hideous kind of like uh, antebellum serial killer of her, of her own slaves. And she had a house in the French quarter. She was, a character on American Horror Story season three, which was kind of a, a cluster F. Um, but beyond that kind of stuff, um, I think that the city, obviously, you know, Katrina plays a large role in, in sort of the city's now and how it sees itself and its past. And, and I think that you don't really have to look even too far into the distant past to see those kind of elements. So I don't only count them as things that are, gruesome or supernaturally inflected, but I mean, you know, the city itself, its infrastructure, um, I mean, all of that, I think, contributes to kind of uh, its character, uh, which is a very dark character in many ways, but also is a very kind of upbeat, uh, live-in-the-moment 
right. character. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, I've, I've always found to be a very interesting contradiction. One of the reasons I do love the city so much and find it so fascinating. And are you uh, traveling to any of these places mentioned in the stories in the serial? Uh, do you do you visit and check in and use that as on the ground research when you're putting together each episode? Um, well, given that right now I'm more or less housebound, uh, okay. no. <laughs> right. But uh, but I did when when me and my wife first moved to the city, we lived in uh, we lived in a different neighborhood closer to downtown. In fact, we live in the neighborhood where a lot of the serial takes place, which is kind of the seventh ward Treme area. Um, and so a lot of that is sort of just things that I observed living in the neighborhood. Um, some of the killings, um, one of the killings in the serial was an actual killing Really, that happened in the, in the neighborhood down the block from us. Um, uh, and I don't want to give any plot, plot points away, but part of part of what actually happened, at least by hearsay, has been included in the plot. So that's we're talking about the main killing that uh, sets off in the first episode, or the uh, earlier. No, the killing, killing of the uh, of the social worker. Social worker, okay. Um, was apparently something that actually happened, um, but uh, but I'm obviously taking I'm taking the killing, and I'm obviously you know expanding on it every which way and in different directions. But the killing itself was very sad. Um, because it was this woman uh, who I believe worked at a nursing home outside of the city who would, uh, was taking the bus and then the trolley and then walking along a long stretch in between, and she was uh, killed one night um, in a, apparently a, in a robbery gone bad um, on Esplanade Avenue, uh, and so that was sort of one of the, that was that was just sort of a, a sort of a shaking experience. I mean, it was just sort of a shaking experience I think for everybody who lived in the neighborhood. Um, because it was seemingly so random, and she was such a kind of a seemingly a good person. I know uh, we're around halfway through, just about halfway through the serial at this point, uh, and I can't, in good conscience, ask you for any major spoilers to a New Orleans murder mystery. But I'm curious if you can give us maybe just a flavor, just a taste of what we could expect or what we could keep our eyes peeled with regard to the case of Jim Shurrell and the uh, brutal murder of his former competitor, X Chinsky? Well, I suppose I can say that um, the story will start, things start to get a little bit more surreal um, and sort of, you know, if I've been doing my job right, I feel like I've been sort of hinting at sending up a vibration of something a little otherworldly and some of the earlier installments. So some of that starts to creep in um, and obviously, I can't say whether or not that will be sort of uh, brought to bear in a in a real way, um, or you know, brought to bear in a world that's sort of governed by the same rules as our world is. But uh, that stuff sort of starts to creep in in the second half. That sounds good. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Adrian Van Young, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The Murder Chronicles, a New Orleans murder mystery, is available now for your reading and sleuthing pleasure. Dive into the case of Jim Shurrell and the death of his former competitor, X Chinsky, on thelineup.com. When you're finished, share your suggestions in the comments section. Then tune in the following week to see if your feedback reshaped the storyline. The Lineup Podcast is written and produced by the Lineup staff and myself, Matthew Thompson. 
Special thanks to Michael Bates, Adrian Van Young, and our partners in crime at Open Road Media. Our audio producer is Chai Dungari. Background music is by Audio Summit. And our theme music is by Absofacto at absofacto.com. For more information on the stories we present, visit our website, thelineup.com. That's the-line-up.com, where murder and mayhem is delivered daily. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well, which brings you five mysteries to your inbox every week. This is Matthew, and that does it for me. Till next time, keep it weird. <laughs>